Redeemer Church, I have an important question to ask you. What do you love to eat? As an Indian man from Kerala, my idea of the perfect meal is a large plate of rice covered with sambar, with vegetables, papad, pickle, and fried fish. Mmm, yummy. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, what can I say? You're missing out. Now, even though I know that having a green salad for lunch is probably better for me and may help me live longer, it just doesn't quite hit the spot. Don't you just love it when you have eaten something and it really satisfies you? I'm sure that all of you can think of some meal like that. Every one of us, I think, is on a quest to be fully satisfied. And I'm not just talking about food. It could be our jobs, or we desire a perfect family, or we desire a fully satisfying relationship with somebody. It seems that to be completely filled and satisfied is somehow hardwired into us. Well, in the passage that we are going to look at this morning, we are going to see some people who are running after Jesus to be filled. But they don't quite understand what that means. So there are three things that we are going to talk about, look at three points if you're taking down notes this morning. Seeking, believing, and feasting. Seeking, believing, and feasting. First of all, seeking. Let's read from verses 22 to 40 of John chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. <clears throat> when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are, not, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now in the passage that we are looking at, Jesus is having a lengthy discussion with some Jews who are before him. Now, what has led to this long discussion or interaction between Jesus and the Jews is an amazing miracle that Jesus did earlier on in the same chapter, John chapter 6. And the miracle was the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the people were so amazed when Jesus did that miracle that they called him a prophet and they even forcefully tried to make him a king. But he wouldn't let them. So the people lost track of Jesus, and then we finally see them here with Jesus after they've worked really hard searching for him and looking for him. Now, as you look at the beginning of the passage that we are uh, discuss uh, that we are looking at this morning, verses 22 to 25, it seems like the people are genuinely interested in Jesus. They seem to be genuinely seeking for Jesus. Now, in fact, if I saw droves of people coming to seek out Jesus, I would be very excited. But Jesus' response is not what you would expect. Look at verse 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, The main reason why these people are seeking after Jesus was just to get more bread. They were hungry again, and they wanted Jesus to fill their bellies again. They did not understand, according to Jesus, what the feeding of the 5,000 signified. They did not understand the sign of the feeding. So to them, Jesus was no more than some kind of a religious magician who could do party tricks, or some kind of divine vending machine that would give them bread all the time. No, the reason why Jesus even did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was not to teach people that ultimately what he has come into this world is to provide bread. Yes, he did have compassion for the people who were hungry. Yes, he wanted to feed them. But... Their physical satisfaction was not his ultimate goal for coming into this world. Jesus wanted them to look beyond their immediate needs. He wanted them to look at what their souls were really longing for, what their souls were really hungry for. These people were wasting their time, their energy, going after food that was going to perish. That was going to leave them hungry after a few hours again. But what Jesus said they really need is food that endures to eternal life. Food that produces 
more than just some kind of momentary satisfaction. Now notice also that Jesus says that there is only one person in the world who can provide that. There is only one person that God has approved to give this kind of food. And that is Jesus. God has set a seal on Jesus to be able to give this. Just like how a king, when he sets a seal on something, makes it official, so also God the Father has set a seal on his son Jesus to mediate eternal life in this world. Lots of people can provide food that nourishes our earthly bodies, but only Jesus can provide us food that endures to eternal life. So this is the real reason why Jesus has come into this world. Friends, we need to be careful of the lie which says that if you come to Jesus, he promises to make you healthy and wealthy in this world. There are many who preach the so-called prosperity gospel around the world and even here in Dubai. Now, they may throw in the fact that Jesus has died for your sin. And if you come to Jesus, you can get eternal life. But the problem with their teaching is that they emphasize the material blessings over the spiritual benefits of coming to Jesus. They distract people from the true purpose, the real reason why Jesus has come into this world. And they stop people from looking to Jesus to receive eternal life. Let's not make this mistake. Jesus has not come into our world to teach us 10 steps to getting rich or to teach us how to live your best life now. His aim was never the material prosperity of his followers in this world. Many of his followers suffered and was brutally killed for following Jesus. He promises persecution if you follow him. No, he wants us to enjoy greater things, far superior things than anything that this perishing, fading world can provide us. Now praise God that he's given us a good church. He's given us faithful elders and teachers who help us discern right doctrine from wrong doctrine. They can help us discern what the prosperity gospel is. Now, we may claim that we don't really believe in the prosperity gospel, but we must still check our hearts and see whether there is any ungodly desire lurking there for material wealth, for worldly things. Maybe, too, maybe there is a longing for too much comfort, too much money, or maybe even worldly success. You need to ask yourself the question, do these things things of this world consume your mind and your desires? Do you find yourself when you're praying, praying more for physical things rather than spiritual needs? And ultimately, you need to ask yourself this question. Do you go to God for him or for the things you can get from him? These people who were following Jesus were really only interested in the food that they can get from Jesus. But also, there is something else that they want. Now, Jesus tells the crowd that the work they ought to be doing in verse 29 
is believe in him. Now in response, they ask for a very strange thing from Jesus. They ask for a sign. Look at verse 30. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Now this is a funny question. Jesus has just done an amazing sign with the feeding of the 5,000, with a handful of loaves and fish. What more could they possibly want to see? But notice, they have a very specific sign in mind. They want to see the sign of the manna in the wilderness, where God sent bread from heaven every day to feed the hungry Israelites while they were in the wilderness. They want to see Jesus prove that he is as good as their prophet Moses. Now you may be wondering, why this sign? Why not the parting of the Red Sea? Or water from the rock? Why this sign? These people that are following Jesus are fixated on bread. But now it's a little different. They don't want Jesus to provide them just any bread. They want bread that falls from heaven. They are after the experience that their forefathers in Exodus that we read had. Who wouldn't, right? It's like trying a new restaurant. Except they're asking to try food from heaven. They seem to be saying to Jesus, well, that miracle that you did back there was great, but it's not enough. Do this and we will believe in you. They don't get it at all. Jesus corrects them. He says that it was not Moses, but it was actually God who provided the manna in the wilderness. And the point of the manna was not to show how great a prophet Moses was, but it was to point to God and to show his love for his people, his kindness in providing for their needs. These people took the story and made it all about themselves. And so even now, rather than seeing Jesus' miracles as being a sign that points to God's provision for their deepest needs, they see his miracles as just another experience for them. They feel like Jesus must continue to jump through hoops until they're completely convinced. But the miracles are not about them. They are about God. They serve to elevate Jesus and prove his identity to anyone who cares to truly see and believe. Jesus does not give them what they want. Jesus is not interested in showing them more signs and wonders. He's done enough for them to believe in him. Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that he wasn't in the business of entertainment. Friends, we too can make the mistake of falling prey to the temptation to entertain. There are many churches who make their church all about what the people want and not about what Christ their Lord wants. We can easily pack our church with another thousand people more if we wanted. If our band was even cooler, or if Adrian wore a green mohawk, or if we had laser-like shows and smoke every time a preacher got up, up here to preach, or we could entertain people throughout with jokes after jokes in our sermons. Entertainment is easy 
But we must be careful that we are not entertaining people into hell. Friends, Jesus wasn't doing things just to win a popularity contest. And so we shouldn't either. We want to point people effectively to Jesus. We want to lift him up and allow people to look on him without any distractions. This is, by the way, one of the main reasons why our elders of this church are committed to doing expositional preaching, where they go chapter by chapter, book by book of the Bible normally, so that what you're hearing is more of God and less of man. We believe that this is the best thing that we can receive for our souls. The pure unadulterated word of God. Because unless Jesus is portrayed and pictured clearly to people and people look to him for salvation, they can experience no life. Now the irony of the situation in this passage is that the Jews ask for bread from heaven, but they don't realize that he's actually standing right in front of them. Jesus tells them in verse 35, I am the bread of life, and yet they refuse to embrace him. Jesus wants them to come to him on his own terms. He says in verse 29, the work of God is to believe in him who he has sent. True belief is looking to the Son, coming to the Son to seek eternal life, and recognizing that there is nothing anyone can do to earn eternal life. But friends, What promises there are for they that come? Anyone who comes to Jesus, he promises that they will never hunger and never thirst. He doesn't mean physically, but spiritually. He will forever quench their soul's hunger and thirst. No relationship on earth, no amount of money, no amount of hard work can achieve this for our hearts. Only Jesus can. He alone can satisfy our heart's deepest longings. For those who come to Christ, they not only have life, they have life abundant. Notice the kind of life that Jesus says he will provide for them. Verse 39, Jesus promises to lose no one that comes to him. He promises that he will never cast them out. He will never leave them. He promises that they will never return to their former state of being hungry and thirsty ever again. So not only does Jesus give eternal life, but he promises to preserve it for them. He promises to keep their faith for them. Friends, our salvation is all by God's grace. Even our ability to trust in Jesus for salvation and to continue to trust in him is by God's grace. And he will ensure that we persevere in our faith till he comes back. This is the Father's will, Jesus says. And this is why he was sent into the world. This was his mission. The reason why we can be assured of these promises that Jesus makes is because Jesus always perfectly fulfills what his Father wills. Jesus has obeyed his Father even when it was hardest for him to do so. Right before his crucifixion and death in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it was most difficult for Jesus, he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And even there, 
Christ obeyed his father perfectly, if he would do even that, then would not he keep us till the very end and raise us up on the last day? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.8, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord. My dear Christian brother and sister, when you struggle with sin, do you doubt God's goodness to you? Do you doubt that God might turn his face away from you? Do you sometimes feel that God might reject you because of your sin? These promises should be a great encouragement to you as you continue your walk with Christ and as you continue to believe in Jesus. John Piper puts it so well. He says, The assurance of the believer is not that God will save him even if he stops believing, but that God will keep him believing. God will sustain you in faith. He will make your hope firm and stable to the end. He will cause you to persevere. Look on the Son, the bread of life sent from heaven, who has come to give you life. He desires to and is able to keep you till the very end. So be encouraged because he is faithful. Now, of course, how do you think the crowd responded to all these amazing promises that Jesus was making? They believed. No, they didn't. Let's look at the second point. Believing. Let's read from verses 41 to 47. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Okay, so Jesus has given them an amazing description of what he's offering them. And look at the people's response. You would expect at this point for these people who are listening to Jesus to fall down on their knees and worship him and believe in him. Instead, they grumble. They take issue at the fact that Jesus has said that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. I mean, you can almost understand why. They know his parents. They know who Joseph and Mary are. They know where he comes from. Some of them may have even known him from his childhood. They cannot believe that the seemingly ordinary man could be from heaven. So they try to argue that even though he's done these amazing things, his unimpressive lineage proves that he cannot be from heaven. The one who was to come from heaven would surely be more impressive, right? He would be special in some way. Who is Jesus? Their grumbling and complaining is actually no different from their forefathers in the Old Testament. 
Remember the manna that they thought was so incredible that they couldn't wait to taste? This is what their forefathers had to say after they ate the manna that God provided to them in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, they say, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that costs nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. The manna didn't seem as impressive as what the Egyptians had offered them. It didn't matter that God had sent it from heaven and that it was the only thing that was keeping them alive. They used their human intellect and base craving to reject God's gift to them. And don't you see, this is exactly what the crowd that is standing in front of Jesus is doing. They are willing to forfeit the life-giving bread for food that will perish. Oh, what a foolish and costly mistake. How blind they are. And yet, if these people who were standing before Jesus were no different to their forefathers, the question we must ask ourselves is, are we really any different from them? If they had Jesus right before them and didn't believe, what about us? It seems clear that left to his own devices, man will never be able to recognize Jesus for who he is and truly appreciate him. The situation is truly hopeless. There is no human argument or human reason that will make us want to worship him and believe in him for eternal life. Because as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead. But God was not going to let his plan fail because these people weren't responding like they were supposed to. Jesus knew that these people were not going to be able to come to him on their own because of their wicked and corrupt hearts. So his mission ultimately does not rest on their positive response towards him. If it were so, then it would surely fail. God's plan and mission completely rests on God's sovereignty and his power to draw people to his son. Look at verse 44. This is what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Notice what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that the father is keeping people from believing in him. No, that's our wicked and corrupt hearts that is stopping us from believing in Jesus. Rather, he is saying that without the father's drawing influence, no one would ever be able to believe in Jesus. The father overpowers us in our rebellion, turns us towards Christ, even though it is completely against our natural desire. And when the father draws people to himself, he changes their hearts. God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26, this is what he does. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, this is the great hope we have. Even though we were so rebellious that we wouldn't turn on our own, God loved us enough that he drew us to his son. It does not depend on our good works or how good or bad we may seem. 
even the vilest sinner can come to Jesus. God can turn the heart of the most cruel, most wicked, most immoral person and make him hate his sin and love Jesus than anything else. There is hope for anyone. Even as Jesus is saying these things, he knows that he is talking about these things to a group of people that are hard-hearted, that on their own, they will not be able to turn. But Jesus knows how powerful God is to be able to turn people's hearts towards his son. This is why Jesus is issuing the invitation for even them to come to believe in him. Look at verse 47. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What grace and mercy God has shown us. We bring nothing but our sin and rebellion to the table. And he offers us salvation. He offers it to us irrespective of our ethnicities, of our color, of our accomplishments. And so no one who has come to Jesus will be able to boast even in the fact that they have come to Jesus or put their faith and trust in him. No, our salvation from A to Z is all God's work. It's all God's grace that he mercifully pours out on us. Friends, God's power to draw people to his son should motivate us to call people freely to follow Jesus. There is no one who is too far gone for God to be able to save. Ask yourself this question. Is there someone in your life right now that you feel is too hard-hearted to be saved? As you think about them, and if you're feeling discouraged about how you're going to share the gospel with this person, friends, all you have to do is take a look around you. Look at all the lives in this room that God has changed miraculously. People who, by God's grace, have turned from their wickedness to Christ. This is why it is so wonderful for us to gather together like this as a church. We see so many examples of God's grace in the lives of all kinds of people from all kinds of background. And if he has shown grace and mercy to so many of us in this room, could he not also show same grace, same mercy to your friend who you think is too difficult? Perhaps you are here this morning and you feel that maybe you yourself are too wicked for God to be able to save. Or that you are too bad, you can't be good enough for God to be able to save. Consider this. Maybe the reason why you are even here this morning is because God is already at work in your heart, drawing you to his son. Come to Jesus and you too will experience life. Let's look at the third point, feasting. Let's read from verses 48 to 59. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now in the section that we just read, Jesus elaborates what he means, to, what it means for him to be the bread of life. Now, he starts off by drawing a comparison between the manna in the wilderness and himself. Manna was special, important, and good, but it had no ability in and of itself to give life. It cannot change people's hearts and cannot affect their eternal destinies. Jesus, on the other hand, is the living bread. If you fed the manna to a dead person, you know what would happen? Nothing. If you fed Jesus to someone who's spiritually dead, they will come to life and they will experience eternal life. Now notice, Jesus says something very startling in verse 51. He says, the bread is his flesh. You can imagine what the people who were listening to Jesus for the first time might have felt when he said this. Even today, the thought of cannibalism is sickening. How much more do you think for a Jewish person who had strict dietary laws and regulations? Jesus does not stop. He says that you must eat his flesh, drink his blood in order to have eternal life. Can you imagine how offensive this must have been to a Jew? The law of Moses forbade the drinking of blood and eating the meat and even eating of meat with the blood still in it. Leviticus 7:27 says, Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Now the reason why these laws existed in the Old Testament was that blood was considered to be the very life of the creature. Genesis 9 verse 4. To drink the blood of a creature was sacrilegious. It is like eating it alive. It was almost too gruesome to comprehend. Now why would Jesus say such a thing? We know that he's not trying to win a popularity contest, but is he deliberately trying to drive them away? Not at all. Jesus is pointing back to something in their own laws. He's actually pointing back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The Jewish people regularly offered sacrifices for their sins, and the way they did that was slaughtering bulls and goats and birds. The animal's blood would be collected, and they would be splashed against the altar. If you think about it, it's actually quite gruesome. Perhaps today, many would consider it to be very cruel and shocking. So the big question is, why did God give them such laws? The Israelites had to sacrifice the animals in order to make atonement for their sin. The blood of animals would never pay for their sins. 
the sacrifice was actually on one hand supposed to show them how bad and wicked their sin was. The picture of an innocent animal being slaughtered and its blood being spilled was meant to horrify and remind people of how grievous their sin was against God. The animal was killed brutally instead of them. Friends, all of us have sinned against God, whether we like to admit it or not. Perhaps you feel like your sin is not such a big deal when you look at some of the others in this world. But the Bible says that we have offended a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. We are in outright rebellion against him. And we are at enmity with him because of this. And our relationship with him on account of our rebellion has been severed. Because of this, we are condemned for all of eternity. Now we rightly deserve this because we are accountable to a God who is holy, pure, perfect, and just. So if you don't understand your sinfulness, it means you don't understand God's holiness. As gruesome as the sacrifices were, they were nothing compared to what they were actually pointing to. They had no value when it, when it came to saving people, but they pointed to a sacrifice that one day could really save them. And that is what Jesus was referring to when he talks about his flesh and blood. Jesus would eventually be handed over to wicked men and condemned to death. They would mock on him, spit on him. They would flog him repeatedly till his body was torn up and bleeding. He would have nails driven through his hands and his feet and he would be hung on a cross. They would push a crown of thorns onto his head and he would hang there for several hours his blood pouring out of his raw, exposed wounds and the gash in his side. He would die a slow, agonizing, gruesome death. Before his death, Jesus explained what all this meant to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, just as Jesus is the better bread, he is the better sacrifice. His sacrifice is not just a picture. It is the reality. His sacrifice is actually able to pay for our sins once and for all if we trust him. The punishment that we deserve, he paid in full. His death was not the end of the story. But he rose from the grave, conquering death proving to the world that he has been successful in his mission, that anyone who would come to him, would believe in him, could look forward with great hope, great expectation, to also being raised up with him on that last day. Friends, this is hope. This is glorious hope that Jesus offers us. But notice, this is not for everyone. Look at who he says this is for in verses 53 and 54. It is for those who would feed on his flesh and drink his blood. Now Jesus is in no way suggesting cannibalism. 
So what does he mean by this? To feed on his flesh and drink his blood. Now many people would look at these verses and say that it is actually referring to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an important sacrament for Christians. It is a symbol to show that they are actually saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. But the act of Lord's Supper in itself has no value of giving eternal life. No more than the manna in the wilderness could give life. So what does Jesus mean when he said to feed on him and drink his blood? And how does one do that? When the Jewish people brought an animal to be sacrificed before God, they were effectively telling God, I am helpless, I cannot pay for my sins on my own. If we think that we can somehow please God on our own, or that we can make up for our sins somehow, or we can bear the punishment that we deserve ourselves, then Jesus' sacrifice has no effect for us. We must be aware of our helplessness and come to him in faith. Simply put, to eat his flesh and drink his blood is the same as looking to him and believing in him for eternal life. Verse 40. It is us agreeing with God that Jesus' sacrifice is the only way to pay for our sins and rejoicing that God would be so merciful to us. When we feast on him, we are embracing his suffering on our behalf. Jesus doesn't just want our intellectual assent. He wants his sacrifice to be all that we will ever eat and all that we will ever drink to be fully satisfied in our souls. And he promises that when we come to his table and join in the feasting, he abides in us and we in him. What a beautiful promise for us, my Christian brothers and sisters. Jesus is not just content with paying for our sins and giving us a clean slate. No, he wants to be in an intimate relationship with us. This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that Jesus gives is no ordinary life. It is the life that comes from the Father. Have you ever thought about that? As believers, the life that we enjoy is God's own life. When we come to Christ, he's inviting us to come and share in his life, no longer do we live in the same way again. We have new identities. Christ becomes our identity. He changes us. He dwells in us by his spirit and will transform us to be exactly like him in all his glorious perfections, spotless, without blemish, and completely holy. Meditate on this, brothers and sisters. Fill your hearts and minds with the knowledge of him who gave himself up for you. Feast on him. Nourish your souls with his life-giving word. If you are here, and if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, the bread who has come from heaven to give life, I encourage you, my dear friend, come and eat. There is no better food. There is no better satisfaction. There is no better savior. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you have not given us what our sins deserve, but you have given us far more than what we could ever imagine or dream of. Thank you, God, that you have sent your son into our world who has come to give us life. Help us to not turn to anything else to satisfy our souls. Help us to trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. We ask all this for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.